This podcast is brought to you by Mr. Allen's company, Fireplane Productions. Hi, my name is Ruth, and I'm an adventurer. <laughs> I love that. Hi, my name is Ryan, and I'm an adventurer. I met today's utterly fascinating guest about a half decade ago. We were in the same marketing class. I don't know how it works, but adventurers tend to find each other, and I was instantly drawn into Ruth's captivating tales. In terms of adventures, Ruth is a polymath, boldly exploring in diverse and intriguing ways. She has worked as a broadcast journalist, a magazine editor, a real estate developer, and an auctioneer. She's traveled to all seven continents, including sailing to Antarctica the long way. (laughs) She loves riding motorcycles, driving sports cars, and ski drawing with her dogs in Maine. For the most part today, we'll probably be talking about her global adventures in air and gas-powered aircraft. Welcome to the Everyday Adventures podcast, Ruth Lind. Thank you, Ryan. It's so great to catch up again. Oh my gosh. It just takes me back to uh, Bloomington, Indiana, sitting there trading stories around the table. Oh my goodness. So I found a resume of you online, Ruth, that required me to Google a lot of things. I've spent a lot of time in the air, and I didn't know what some of these words are. And I am even more impressed by the things that you have accomplished in your adventure career. Uh, I did not know what the word rosier, is it rosier, rosier? Yes, rosier. That's a combination gas and hot air balloon. Uh, Most balloons are either gas, where you have a simple cell that's filled with hydrogen or helium, usually hydrogen these days because helium's hard to come by. Or you have a hot air balloon where the bottom of the envelope is open and a burner heats the air inside to make the balloon rise. Air is the lifting gas or hydrogen is the lifting gas or helium. I've even flown with NH3, uh, ammonia gas, as a no, lifting isn't gas. Isn't that explosive? No, it's it's very defoliating. You have to be very careful where you fly it and where you deflate. You don't want to fly it wearing contacts because it will, <laughs> uh, anything coming out of the appendix will dry up your contacts and get very uncomfortable. So, so this thing exfoliates plant, like from how far away do you have to be careful about that? Well, it's if it touches the leaves, but NH3 liquid ammonia gas is also used as fertilizer. Yeah. So we have some funny stickers around saying fly fertilizer. And the, the guy who I used to fly ammonia with actually owns a fertilizer plant and fertilizer distribution network. And we flew out in McCook, Nebraska. And it was very easy to get at that time. I don't think many people are flying ammonia these days, but yeah, uh, I mean, I've seen it. We, we had a lot, a lot of, of the farm it. equipment I sell will have a lot of ammonia tanks on wheels, you know, portable. How do you, you get go. it? How do you carry that on the balloon? Like, don't you need a lot of it to fly? Well, it's <laughs> balloons are measured in cubic feet or cubic meters of capacity. So you need enough to fill whatever balloon envelope you have. You would only be flying ammonia in a place out west that's very... Oh, like a desert. Gotcha. Okay. And so the fertilizer trucks would be out there and you arrange with the fertilizer companies ahead of time, just like you do with hydrogen or helium. You have to arrange for the big trucks to meet you at at the launch field and fill you up. Is that something that a balloon meister does or is that somebody else's responsibility to negotiate all that and coordinate all of that? There are several different roles, different types of balloon meisters. I used to be a balloon meister at balloon events. So I would be in charge of the entire balloon event. In gas ballooning, a balloon meister is generally the person in charge of the inflation and liftoff. Okay. And so in terms of the fill, yes, that would be the balloon meister pretty much coordinating that. But the pilots are very involved. So on, on average, on a, I, I've only flown in a hot air balloon once. On average, like how big is a crew for an event like that? Obviously, the pilot, you have a bunch of organization. I would imagine you have hands on the ground helping. Are you talking about a competitive gas balloon yeah, yeah, event yeah. or a I was really flight? intrigued by that in your resume. Like, I didn't even know that you could compete 
Like I, I was like, what are they? And I had to Google, what do they actually compete? Is it how high or how fast? It's like, no, it's like distance or they have to go to certain GPS yeah. locations. Uh, it's distance or accuracy, navigating the wind. But uh, to launch a gas balloon, you can do it with five or 10 people, but it's a lot easier if you have about 20 people. And then in general, you'll have three or four people chasing the balloon because the flights last for days and yeah. people need to be able to sleep and that sort of thing. And then in the gas balloon race that we run out of Albuquerque and the Gordon Bennett gas balloon race, then you have a team of people on the ground whose job it is to be mission control and keep in touch with air airspace controllers and meteorologists and we have technology where it's called it's APRS technology where we can follow the balloons, know their altitude, their speed, their trajectory, overlay that with weather maps and the air traffic control so we can know where they're going and then we can put slip a little Google Earth satellite stuff in there so if necessary, we can even help them navigate to a landing spot. We can say, okay, just ahead of you in your direction at flight, you'll come down over the crest of a little bit of a hill. And if you can catch somewhat of a left, you'll, you know, you'll be able to slide in there or whatever. That and sounds that's, so complicated. <laughs> it, well, it does. Um, I don't fly gas balloons anymore. I'm retired, but now I run that command center in Albuquerque during the gas balloon race every year. And it, oh my gosh, it's so much fun. It's gotta be frenetic. You have to have so many voices in your ears and all of that. Oh stuff. yeah, yeah. And I have a team because, you know, the balloons are flying 24 seven, so they need support all the time. We had, a, tell you a couple of funny things that happened a few years ago. I got a phone call in the command center and it was one of my gas balloon teams and they had landed in White River, I can't remember if it's Manitoba or Saskatchewan, but Canada. Yeah, yeah. Up there in the town that Winnie the Pooh came from. And they were in the woods and they called on their sap phone and they said, we need some help. We're stuck in the woods. <laughs> Can you find us a chainsaw? And I said, all right, where are you? Got their position. They were like five miles off the nearest road in the woods. I'm like, hmm. You know, probably two or three hundred miles over the Canadian border. I don't remember exactly. So I look up the local town and I'm like, hello, White River Town Office. <laughs> yes. This is Ruth Lind calling from the America's Challenge Gas Balloon <laughs> Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You're who? And you're calling from where? It's like, yeah, we really need some help. We have a balloon that's down and I gave them the position and they need a chainsaw. Do you know anyone we could hire with a chainsaw to go give them some assistance and the whole town turned out to help them. And, and it was great. So is that event like every year, do they run to the same place or? Oh no, because the wind is never going the same. The wind is never the same any two days in a row. So one year they went up to Labrador. Yeah. The winning team landed up in Labrador. Other times they go to Quebec. Sometimes they go to Florida or New so Jersey. So the destination Maine. is determined like at the event or within close to it? It's just distance. Sometimes oh, gotcha. you can have two balloons going completely different directions and it can be a neck and neck race. One's going north, one's going oh, east. Wow. And it's just whoever covers the most distance. That has got to be really, not just border crossings, but like bodies of water. I mean, yeah. Because balloons can go places, my experience, balloons can go places I couldn't get in a vehicle. Every now and again, they cross the Great Lakes. That's always fun because their crews have to figure out how to get across the Great Lakes. And there's only so many ferries. Like, they're they're probably going to have to go the long way. Ferries, bridges. I mean, yeah, it, dep it all depends on where they are. So is it uh, a, a closing time? It's however many miles you get by a certain time? No, the, it's not time. It's gas balloons... Before they run out of flying all day in the at night, the gas cools off, the balloon contracts and it tends to sink. Mm. So the pilot will be releasing ballast to regain altitude or, or go higher. 
Then in the morning when the sun comes out, it's just the opposite effect. The gas heats up and it rises and occasionally the pilot will have to valve out a little bit of gas out the top so they don't go too high. And too high might be determined by the rules of the race, uh, you know, not allowed to go above 18,000 feet or whatever. Um, or it might be just the pressure ceiling of that particular envelope. So as time goes by, you get lower on ballast and lower on gas. And when you don't have enough to maneuver yeah. safely, then it's time to land. And so that might take two days. It might take five and a half days. Mm. So you don't know when you get in that basket, you don't know how long you're going to be there. Well, we... I mean, five days With is a long time. Planning, you can have a much better idea. I mean, right. we know generally what the weather's doing. Uh, we know if we've been able to drop a few pounds before we get in the basket. We know if we've drilled holes in our toothbrushes. <laughs> we have lightened our load so that we can extend, You have as much weight as possible in, in ballastable stuff like sand and water. So are the support teams collecting that ballast when it falls or is it just like, well, there's no, some sand? Yeah, it's just sand that drifts down or water that sometimes doesn't even make it to the earth. That so what's the highest that. you've ever been altitude in a hot air balloon or a gas balloon? I had a gas balloon, 17 or 18,000 feet, oh I think. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's cold up there. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Was the air? Was it hard to breathe, too? Well, you carry oxygen. It's okay. required to use oxygen if you're above 12,000 feet for the pilot in command. So so they're staying no. way. When I did it, it was, you know, one of those romantic things you do is our anniversary or something like that. We never got more than maybe 1,800 feet off the ground. So these guys That's are staying. Yeah. So these folks, these competitors are way higher than that, I would assume then. Sometimes, sometimes there'll be a low level jet. So the whole flight will be at a thousand to five thousand feet just because that's where the fast wind is that will take you the most distance and sometimes you have to go high to find the wind yeah and our, our pilot said you, your altitude also determines sometimes your steering because different winds right. are heading in different directions and you kind of right. scope that up. how, how does okay. air traffic control and pilots of powered aircraft view you guys are you an annoyance are they fascinated are they hey look everybody look out the window to your right or how does that work all of the above, depending on when it is. The, um, well, if we're coming into controlled airspace during a, a rushed traffic time, they don't want us there because we can't quickly maneuver and get out of the way. So if we're coming into Chicago at three o'clock in the afternoon, they mm. might ask us to land before we enter their airspace. If we're going through Kansas City at two o'clock in the morning, they think it's really cool and they talk to us <laughs> and they're very happy about that. So it's mutual respect. Other aircraft will talk to us. On the big races, we all have to have aircraft radios and oh, mode C transponders so they can see us. And it's courtesy and respect on both sides. And I would have to imagine a lot of this has gotten easier with technology. Like, I can't imagine doing this 30 years ago, pre-GPS, pre... I mean, you've oh, been... Oh, you mean like when I was doing yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to be nice about this. I mean, but you started when I was two years old. So, like, I'm just blown yeah. away. It's like I, I took some guys hang gliding here a few years ago, and one of the guys used to hang glide in the 70s, and he was telling us the contraption he flew into hang glides. Like, that. I don't know that I would get in that. I don't know. I started flying hot air balloons in 1978. And it was, yeah, I mean, we would have radios just like little walkie talkies or no radios at all. And the, the most valuable person was the good chase driver that had an instinct <laughs> for being able to follow the balloon because the radios were ridiculous. And now we all just use our cell phones and the aircraft. We're all, um, in the gas space, most of us get our ham radio licenses, so we'll make use of ham radios, which are a lot more efficient. Yeah, and lighter um, too, right? And lighter, and we know how to build antennas that will keep our aircraft radios going. The real competitive guys now are using computers inside their baskets, and they're using rechargeable, solar rechargeable batteries to keep their computers powered up and interacting with satellites and 
It's pretty impressive yeah. to watch. So are there baskets? I'm assuming there would have to be, they've got crews or is it just one pilot up there? No, it's two in a gas flight. It's always two pilots. So one person can sleep. Oh, okay. So, but it, yeah. it must not be a lot of space because if weight's a concern, you're trying to keep it pretty compact. Well, but you need stuff. I mean, you need food and batteries and water and sand. You need space for the sand that you're going to expand, expend. So it's kind of a balance. My gas basket, I believe, was about four by six. Oh, that's a good size. Yeah, I had a fold-down bench on one side, and then I made a kick-out panel on the end of the fold-out bench. So if someone wanted to lay down and sleep, you would lay down on the panel and open the kick-out panel so you could put your feet out and be able to stretch your legs out while you're sleeping. And that was wonderful because sleeping all cramped up is so Yeah, in a fetal position at best, right? I mean, without it. Yeah. So is there a reason, is there like a, a balloon season or a best time of year to attempt something like that where air temperatures and weather help you go for that long distance? It depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, I've had some of my most beautiful flights have been in the dead of winter. Really? Yeah. Because the air's so cold? Well, in the hot air flying, this was hot air flying, you don't burn a whole lot of fuel in the Mm. winter. I remember when I lived in Vermont, there were days that were 20, 30, 40 below, and the sun would be so sparkly. And you stop and think that the the balloon rises because the air inside the envelope is warmer than the air outside the envelope. So if you only have to heat the envelope to like zero, (laughs) you're you're not using a lot of fuel and you could fly like all day. Well, as much daylight as you had or get up in the middle of the night and fly under a full moon over the snow. Oh Oh, my goodness. It doesn't get any prettier than that. I've never even thought about flying at night. You're blowing my mind here to the idea that people are flying more than 24 hours in a row. That's just incredible to me. Well, some people like to go, even now, some people like to do what's called a dawn patrol. They'll take off before sunrise and be in the sky for the sunrise. And that's really pretty. The um, the vendor that offers it, uh, the rides here, hot air uh, rides here, only does it at dawn. Like that's the only yeah. way you can... What's interesting that we didn't pay for it, but you could pay extra. They actually do a thing where they kiss a lake, like they come down and touch the basket in the lake and get your picture touching the lake. That to me looked a little too uh, technical. Oh, it's fun. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. It's I, really fun. <laughs> so you've done it then? Oh, of course. Lots of times. Picking leaves out of the tops of trees is fun. You know, just go mm-hmm. drifting by and, you know. So kinda... have you kept count of how many countries you've flown in a balloon? No, but I can tell you some of the highlights. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think one trip that really stuck with me was few of us were invited to go celebrate King Hussein's birthday in Jordan back when he was still alive. I think he had just recently been diagnosed with cancer and he was still feeling pretty good. And we went over there and camped out in pup tents in Wadi Rum where Lawrence of Arabia was set and... We flew for 10 days, morning and night. What? And, 10 yeah. days? Yeah. And they had Arab army personnel were our chase crews. And <laughs> these guys were chasing us in military vehicles. And they were so nice. And the Bedouins were serving our meals. And the Bedouins had set up a little camp where we were and cooking oh and the music. Oh, my the fellowship, it was just amazing. And one day, it was near the end of the trip, uh, the big celebration where the, I mean, we were flying and that was all good. And then one afternoon, there was a big formal ceremony. And it was earlier in the day than most of us wanted to fly because it was still pretty breezy. The wind hadn't calmed down yet. And we took off and I, my flying partner and I got separated from the group and we we're just out in the pucker brush, as we would say in Maine, just up <laughs> this this valley. And there were a lot of thermals. Oh, I bet. No, you know what thermals yes, are. Yes, mm-hmm. They were bouncing us around pretty good, and you know, from one side of the valley to the other, like a pinball. And we finally got worked our way down. It was very steep, 
mountains there. And we worked our way down and we were like, okay, well, this flight was supposed to be a half an hour. We were up there two hours and a half. We have no clue where anybody <laughs> is. We have one bottle of water between us and here we are. And oh my goodness. We just said, well, you know what? Um, we've learned how friendly the Bedouin people are. And we know that if they find us, they'll take care of us and they'll help us. And eventually our uh, military guy, his name was Mahmoud, and he found us. He had figured it out and found where we well, were. Well, I imagine they don't see a whole lot of hot air or gas balloons in, in Jordan. There, in the, Actually, there are a couple commercial operators oh, now, wow. I think in Amman, maybe in Petra. But while we were there, we went to Petra, which mm. was fascinating. We went to a beautiful beach uh, over across the sea from Israel so we could look across to Israel. But at the time, you were not allowed to go to both Jordan and Israel in the same trip because there were some tensions there. But, that, I mean, that was a very long time ago. We rode camels. It was I haven't tried really that yet. Fun. That looks intimidating to me. <laughs> well, I'm scared of heights. You know, they put me up on this camel, and I was like, ah! <laughs> so... So I back to that thermal thing. So I know in hang gliding class, they were describing what it's like at the top of a thermal. Have you ever topped out on a thermal? Yes. One time we were flying at the U.S. National Championships. And after the competitive event was over, it had been pretty windy. This was in Ohio. We had a night that seemed pretty calm. And those of us who were left in town said, oh, great. Let's go fly our sponsors. It's a beautiful night beautiful afternoon and we got up and it was actually too calm because what happened was the the heat of the day got trapped over some big parking lots like where the big industrial plants were and it created we called it the giant sucking thermal from hell <laughs> and it was terrifying we were just Swinging around like in a centrifuge. No way. And balloons coming right at each other just because it was in this cyclone. And some people were trying to get down and the thermal wouldn't let them get down. And they're screaming. And, and I would never scream in a balloon basket with passengers. And I didn't that day because the last thing you want is scared people to deal with. And I used to have a code word with my crew that if I ever used the word strawberries over the radio, it meant I'm in trouble. Get to me now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm up there flying along, like just shaking. I was so scared. And I'm saying on the radio, oh, there's so many beautiful fields of strawberries down here. I see strawberries <laughs> everywhere I look. <laughs> they were out of range. They never, oh, no. never yeah, the radios weren't very good then. So anyway, I knew the people who were trying to land, I knew they were doing the wrong thing because when you're in a balloon and you get in the thermal, the safest thing to do is is climb. The, the thermal is trying to take you up That's right. That's right. and you want to go down, but don't go down because if you start... It's the same as a riptide in the ocean. If you start valving out gas to go down, then when you get out of the thermal, you're going to be way too soft and you're going to crash. That's right. So the thing to do is to go up even faster than the thermal is making you go up. So I'm putting the heat to it. And I finally came out the top of the thermal and it was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because then it, it was just like a perfectly nice, calm day. And um, I wrote it out. You know, I, let, I all I did was stay up there for another hour until the heat of the day dissipated some and then i had a perfectly normal uneven so how high was, how high was that thermal the reason i ask is because there was a guy here locally had the same situation happen in a hang glider over a yeah. parking lot at walmart and he got twelve thousand vertical feet of lift this was this was very late in the afternoon so it wasn't that high i want to say it was maybe like eight thousand still that's eight huge 8,000 feet yeah. off the ground i don't care what kind of craft you're in that's something I, I don't mind that. I'm perfectly comfortable going high in a balloon basket because if you're up there, I mean, even if your burner fails, you have this great big parachute over your head and you've got time to deal with whatever on your way down. It's not like, you know, get up there, run out of gas and die. It's like, oh yeah, I can, you know, I've got some options that I can work with here. And 
It's much better. Plus the view from way up high is... Yeah, that part's awesome. Just breathtaking. I met Ruth while teaching an auction advertising class. Ruth and I have marketed some spectacular luxury homes, including a few times on the same team. Back in 2016, I helped an auction company sell a $29 million property to Oprah Winfrey. And that sale sovereignly impacted someone in my church's parking lot 2,566 miles away. You can read that wild story at experience.org slash Oprah. Don't worry about remembering that link. It'll be in the show notes. If you'd like to receive my post about physical adventures and spiritual explorations in your email inbox, you can subscribe at the bottom of any page on my blog. I also announce them in my Insta stories under the Ryplane Instagram account. That's R-Y-P-L-A-N-E. I hope my stories inspire you to chase your own adventures and explore the fascinating corners of your world. Adventurers like Ruth have helped me find some of the fantastic experiences I've retold in my book, Scared to Life, Tales of a Good God Who Reveals His Heart When Ours Is Racing. If you're looking for an invitation to places just outside your comfort zone, you can get authentic anecdotes and practical advice on how to do that in Scared to Life. It's available in paperback at online retailers. You can find the audiobook version at Audible iTunes, and the Google Play Store. In case it's a deal breaker, I'm the one who reads the audio version. If you prefer to read books on a phone, tablet, or e-reader, you'll find Scared to Life in the Kindle Store and on Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, I did my first time launching a hang glider from a mile up instead of a half mile. I was like, are you serious? I can see the curvature of the earth up here. (laughs) It's just, it's amazing how just two or 3,000 or 5,000 feet makes a difference. So what's the scaredest you've ever been in a bad, if if you're not scared by height, what, what does, have you ever been scared up there? Obviously strawberries, but. And it was not a time, it was way beyond strawberries. We were, I was still flying gas balloons at the time out of Albuquerque in the America's Challenge race. And we had some really tricky weather one year. I was flying with one of the most experienced gas pilots in the history of the world. Her name was Carol Reimer Davis. Uh, she's, she was a doctor. Oh, wow. And we'd been close friends for years. She and her husband were like family to me. And so... We, our meteorologists, we all hire our own meteorologists that we can talk to 24-7. And our meteorologist told us there was bad weather coming in, which we knew. She said, you have to be out of New Mexico by noon. We were launching around midnight or so. And you have to be out of Texas by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we said, okay, got it. She said, if you can't do that, then land because the bad weather will be coming quickly behind you. You'll have time to land, but don't stay up there and get caught in it. So, okay. So we took off and things were going well. We were out of New Mexico by noon, just, (laughs) and Carol was sleeping. It was her turn to sleep. And I just started, the, the puffy clouds started to come up, which often happens in the middle of the day. And I just, it didn't feel right to me. And I've been flying a lot of years, and it something fell off in my feet. Weird. I, I sense a lot with my feet because I sense the floor of the basket coming up and down. Oh, that makes sense. And just something felt odd in my body. I, I came to realize later that it was electrical impulses. But anyway, um, these started building, and I, I tried to wake Carol up, and I said, Carol, something's not right. And she said... She picked her head up and looked, and she said, it's just thermals, and she went back to sleep. And it kept building, and it kept getting worse, and I tried to call our meteorologist, and cell phones weren't great back then. All I had was this little Motorola StarTac flip phone. Oh, I remember that my boss had one of those at my first job. So anyway, um, tried to call the command center. The command center at the time, obviously I wasn't working there, said, no, you're good, everything's fine. So we kept on going and it kept getting worse. And finally, 
And Carol was up. She's like, yeah, this is bad. I think we'd better stow our stuff and land. And I said, yeah, we should. And this is like one or two o'clock. And then all of a sudden, and we were, by that time, we were completely surrounded by clouds. We couldn't see the earth. We couldn't see the sky. We were in it and they were black. And then the thunder, the, the first thunder boomer came. And if you fly lighter than aircraft, it's like, you ever watch South, South Park? Drugs are bad. It's just like thunderstorms are bad. You shouldn't do thunderstorms because thunderstorms are bad. Okay. They can kill you. Okay. And so here we are, just like thunder and great big hail and then then the wind started and we're going around and around and around and around and i remember looking at carol we were we were at sixteen thousand feet or something oh my gosh yeah and i looked at carol and i said just as calm as could be i said carol i'm seriously terrified right now (laughs) she just said yes so am i let's go down (laughs) i cannot be that that level-headed I would be sick at well, that's the only thing you can do because if you panic and I mean we were panicked, but we were doing it anyway. And we got our helmets on and we stowed all our stuff and we were going around the balloon was spinning out. I mean, it's like the top of the thing was here and we were spinning out because it was going so fast. And we were afraid that the hail would tear the envelope apart. And, of course, there's lightning, thunder everywhere. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Fortunately, that year we were flying with helium. That was before the helium completely dried up. And everybody everybody now flies with hydrogen. And I'd flown both, but we had helium that year. So, But even so, the lightning could have torn a big hole in our envelope and sent us down. And, um, and it was freezing from the hail and everything. And so... We're valving, we're trying to go down, and I had a new instrument pack, and Carol looked at it at one point and said, oh, that's good, we're only going down at 350 feet a minute. And I said, no, Carol, these are fly techs. That says 3,500 feet a minute. And she was oh, like, my goodness. No. So we're going down, and then the then the thunderstorm would take us back up, and then we go down. Well, finally, we came out the bottom of the cloud, the bottom of the thunder cloud at 7,000 feet. And the hail turned to sheet pouring fire hose rain. Oh, wow. And the wind really picked up. And we were over corn. As far as the eye could see, we were in Texas. And we saw a white pickup truck. And we said, okay, maybe he'll help us if we can get down. And we were screaming. And we came down, leveled out, dropped our trail rope, which is a ballasting thing that helps us even out, slow us down a little bit. And then there was a big irrigation arm, um, you know, one of those things they have out west that goes, they're really huge. And our trail rope was out and we didn't want to damage the irrigation arm. So we pulled in our trail rope as fast as we could and we were going to drop it on the other side, which we did. And then we tried to pull our rip panel. We were maybe 25 feet up and we wanted to let all the gas out and come down land and the whole we tried it a couple times nothing happened and then the whole rip panel just came down into the basket and the deflation valve was still in place oh no and we're like you can't let any more out no oh and we're going really fast and then there were high tension power lines coming up right in front of us the big transmission line this is a movie ruth this is a movie (laughs) We looked at each other and we're like, yeah, we got we got a bail. And so we hopped up on the side of the basket, one on each side, and did the three, two, one count. Because if we didn't go at exactly the same time, the other one would go shooting up That's into right. the sky with the balloon. Yeah. So it was three, two, one out. We bailed. We jumped from 20, 20, 25 feet, something like that. But it was all corn. So... That cushioned our fall, and it had been raining so hard that the ground was really muddy and soft, and that was good. And, and the then, people in the truck are witnessing all of this. No, they went away. Oh, they no. drove away. <laughs> there was nobody there. So we're trying to find our way out, and we we finally we heard all these snorting, screaming noises, and we sort of followed them through the corn like a horror movie, and it turned <laughs> out it was a hog farm. Oh, it was a my goodness. It was a secure hog farm. 
and we would go, we found a dirt road and we would go by these big barns with like a ladies room on the end and lights on and then uh, all these screaming pigs. And we finally came to a barnyard and I mean, this is like hours. We came to a barnyard and we were like, we're not supposed to violate anything, but we're getting out of here. And we climbed the gate. The gate was one of those great big, tall, like semi-trailer height gates. Oh, yeah, yeah. We climbed over the top and back down the other side, and the guy pulled in with his, with just coming back from delivering hogs, and he said, "You're not supposed to be here." And we're like, "I just went into full on drama mode," and I'm like, "This is gospel. You know, and I just like went into like hysterical female mode. It's like, you know, what else are you gonna do? So. He put us in the back of this. He called the security guard who came, and the security guard was a very large man with a gun in the back of his crew cab pickup. And he told us to get in the back of his pickup, and we're like, and Carol, you know, the the nuclear physician marathon winner, Gordon Ben. She says, "Oh, sir, I'm so sorry. We wouldn't want to get your truck all muddy." <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at her like, what's the matter with you? And we we got in the back of the truck and we're like holding hands in the back because we're terrified. We're thinking, yeah, did sure. we get through the thunderstorm just for this? Yeah. And we drove and drove and drove and drove. And he took us to this amazingly gorgeous office building, brand new office building, and took us in the door and he... Gave Carol one office, me another office, gave us, showed us where we could take a shower because we were all covered with mud. And then he got, he called the Balloon Fiesta office and got our crew and got our crew in to get us. And it was, they were just so nice there. Everybody we met. So where, where did it end up that you landed? Like, did you find out? Dalhart, Texas. Okay. I'm going to have to Google and that. The balloon was gone. The balloon was totally gone. We rented a little airplane the next day and went to look for it. We couldn't find it. It was finally found. This was October 1st. The balloon was found in mid-December. and <laughs> Kansas, right? Yeah, in Texas, in Dalhart. It had gone up to 28,000 feet, come back down, gone back up to 21,000 feet, come back down and landed. It had evidently you know, gotten rid of some gas on the way. And then the wind had changed. We could tell because the direction of the trail rope where mm. it had dragged along the ground yeah, yeah. was different from the direction that the envelope was laid out. And we went back and got it. The envelope was toast. We ended up building a new one, but the basket was salvageable. And where did, where did the basket end up? Not Dalhart, right? Oh yeah. The basket was with the envelope. The whole system stayed together. No way. And when we got all our stuff back, I got my flip phone back because I didn't, you know, we didn't pack to bail. We just went. That's right. And I opened up my phone and, you know, months later, of course, I've replaced it by then. But there was a voice message from the command center saying, we've had some reports of questionable weather in your area. You might want to think about landing. <laughs> Great it's timing, like, oh, guys. <laughs> thanks a lot, Ray. You know, we still laugh about that. But you took some pictures too. Like I remember you telling me that you had a you had a camera in the basket. Yeah, I had a Canon camera. Sure Shot was the name of it. Yeah, and it was digital. That um, was 2004, so there was digital technology was pretty good by then. And I was taking pictures while we were in the thunderstorm because I really thought we were going to die, and I wanted somebody to have a record of what happened to us. And you know, of course, I didn't have that when I bailed either. But when we got our stuff back, the camera was there. And I thought, oh, great. And I put it in my office. David and I were living in Pennsylvania at the time. And I went off to Maine, came here to Maine to do a dog sledding thing with um, my Chinooks and just grabbed a camera. I had bought another camera, too. Well, I grabbed the wrong camera when I was going out the door and took all these pictures at the dog sled event and, you know, my dogs were doing really well and I was all happy. And I came home and took the SD cards out and put them in my computer and it was all the thunderstorm. No pictures. way. Like that's one heck of a good camera. I will recommend a Canon camera yeah. to everybody. So you, 
I've never seen, I got to see one of these one day. Like that just sounds amazing. Oh, I, never, I never showed them to you. No. Cause you said, Oh, when I get home I, and I forgot to follow up with you when we, Oh yeah. I can send But this you. story is already way better than the first time I heard it. Like this is, there's, oh. <laughs> I, I've been living off the fumes of that story for years. When I, I tell people that I was wanted to interview, I said, Ruth is at the top of the list of who I want on this podcast. Cause what she uh. has survived is incredible. And I tell that story over and over again. Well, I didn't think I would ever be that scared again. But then one time David and I were riding motorcycles in Botswana and because we just like adventure I mean, I bikes. Just, yeah. Uh, BMW. And yeah. My, I was I was riding an F650 GS and he was riding a 1200 GS. Oh, that's a big anyway. Bike. We were riding in in the Chobe Wildlife Preserve in Botswana and there there were some elephants there and there was a young male in must <laughs> and he decided he wanted to charge the motorcycles and i mean i didn't learn how to ride a motorcycle until i was 51 years old so oh my goodness i was still pretty new at it and you know just trying to and it was sand which is really yeah, hard <laughs> it's like yep i'm scared again so Hello, how fast I'm, does an elephant run like pretty fast well fortunately it's it's mama came and encouraged it to move along but if it had started you know it was looking at us and trumpeting at us and we were like i don't know about this but but afterwards so so this your great segue i did not know the conversation was going to go here but the the way that on the everyday adventures podcast that we define adventures it's something you have to overcome a fear or a moment of traumatic event you have to face a challenge but there's usually at the end of it a moment of accomplishment or euphoria where you, you just feel yeah. like you're utterly alive. So after you get chased by an elephant, let me guess, you laughed. You probably laughed really loudly and you probably felt the most alive you've ever felt. I think I said a bad word. I'm sure you um, did. I would. I think I said something like, holy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're. <laughs> I think that there were several of us riding together on that trip. And, th and then we started laughing. And then we just kept on riding and did the rest of the day's ride. And that night we had a few, um, they used to have this hard cider in Botswana that we really liked. And we had a few of those at the lodge and went, yeah, here we go. What's so coming tomorrow? You'll love this. So the last guest I recorded on the podcast is getting into adventure biking and wants me to do it with him. And so I am in the process of getting my motorcycle license just so that I can do that. Yeah, there's a, that, that's a good bike. That's very equivalent to the BMW. There's a school in Spartanburg, which is not too far from you, I don't think. No, probably four um, or five hours. It's not bad. BMW has an off-road adventure bike school. No way. They have a one-day, two-day, or three-day school. I went and took that thing, and I was so beat up at the end of that, but I learned so so, so, so much. All right, I'm going to Google that when we get off because I think that's what I want to do. <laughs> I think this sand and trails through the woods and rock climbing and hills. And I mean, it's they te and they teach you how to do it. All, all on their 650s or on their bigger bikes? No, they, you can ride them. You can do them on 1200s. There's several different choices of bikes. They um, Or you can bring your own bike. The BMW dealership where I live uh, is not very big in terms of the cars on the lot, but it's one of the biggest on the East coast for parts and repair of the adventure bikes. Yeah. So the, the concession I made with my wife is that I, I'm allowed to get my license and get into this as long as I don't buy a bike. She's like, if you're only riding with other people, I trust the other people. She's like, I don't trust you by yourself. So you can't have a bike. So, okay. Let me, let me offer up something for consideration. All right. If you had your own bike and you rode more, you would be safer because you would have the you would be practicing your skills more frequently, more currently, and you would be sharper in your reactions. So I'm going to make sure my wife listens to this episode for sure, because you're making. And that case. was actually that was the reason that I retired from flying, because when <laughs> David and I moved to Maine full time, we lived right on the coast and it was just. I mean, we had to get up at two o'clock in the morning to drive inland to fly. And then there was an international airport. And so we had to drive more and had to find crew to come with us. And it, it got to the point where flying was more of a chore than a joy. 
And then I would go to my events in Vermont or Pennsylvania or New York, where, wherever I like to go. And my skills were not really. So it's not like riding a bike. It's something you have to do regularly. Yeah. Well, that's why there's a currency requirement in aviation. You have to do three takeoffs and three landings within 90 days if you're going to carry passengers. Every 90 days? Yeah. So you're doing, you're doing, that means you're doing, you're having to do at least 12 landings a year. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was flying, when I was the editor of Ballooning Magazine and flying, I was doing, I don't know, 300 flights a year, maybe. Oh my goodness. Um, and it's really, if you're only doing, if you're only doing 12 landings a year, you probably shouldn't be in the air. Oh. I mean, you should be doing way more than that. That makes me question the vendors that do it here. So I'm not far from the Shenandoah Valley. And of course, during foliage season, that's a really big thing to go up and down the valleys. I don't see them the rest of the year. And now, now you're making me question the safety. Well, I don't know. They might. I mean, like Rick, I think Rick Bear is flying down there. I don't know if you ever knew him, but um, I think he flies in the Shenandoah Valley. And I think he just goes to someplace warm to fly in the winter. So oh, he's probably OK. Fine. Gotcha. Some yeah, I mean, it is portable there. if you have a trailer yeah. or a van. What I've been, go fly somebody else's balloon. What I've been getting into is uh, the fixed wing gliders, which I, they had at your glider port, right? When you were in yeah. Vermont? Yep. As my little buddy mentioned earlier, this podcast is sponsored by Biplane Productions, a company that builds direct mail and social media campaigns for adventurers in the auction industry. If you're not an auctioneer, thanks for listening to one of my favorite tax deductions. If you are an auctioneer, find out why more than 200 auction companies have trusted me to advertise almost 9,000 auctions across 49 states and seven foreign countries, winning more than 250 industry awards in the process. If you'd like my help, click the big orange button that says, Get Ryan's Help, at the top of the page at www.biplaneproductions.com. Couple more questions because this has been awesome, Ruth. So, uh, you were part. I read online, so tell me if this is true or not. You were part of trying to make the largest balloon that ever flew. Is this true? Not just trying to make. We made it, honey. <laughs> I wanted you to say it. There we go. Yeah, we did. We put it together. We did a lot of testing. We we were sitting around my house one September afternoon and saying, "Winter's coming. We're going to be bored. What are we going to do?" Well, we don't want to fly across any oceans because you can die doing that. So yeah, let's sure. just build the world's largest hot air balloon. Okay, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we um, did a lot of research and a lot of planning, and we ended up building it out of Tyvek, which is yeah. the house wrapping material. And we glued it together with a casein. We glued it in sort of channels so that you can see where my between my hands that's where the load tapes would go so they could be floating for distributing load glued it together with milk carton glue and then we and it was huge it was 3.042 million cubic feet oh my goodness yeah you consider a normal hot air balloon is probably 70 to 105,000 cubic feet 70 to 105,000 versus 3.042 million. And this thing flew. Oh, yeah. We flew 61 people. Um, <laughs> could have flown more, but we didn't build the box big enough. We decided to fly it on a, on a frozen lake in Maine, so we had to wait for the ice to get thick enough because the last thing we wanted was to come crashing through the ice yeah, on yeah. landing and drown tangled up in load tapes. Yeah, we did. We did that. We went out on, you know, two o'clock in the morning to inflate it. It took 10 burners, stood it up, blew it. We had people hanging in parachute harnesses off the side, which was really funny. That's what I would have volunteered for that. Sign me up. Oh, for yeah. That. But I mean, there was only so many people you could pack in that thing. And and the FAA would not give us an airworthiness certificate. So some people dispute our record, but if it looks like a balloon, right, right, if it right. flies with hot air, if it lifts people, it's a hot air balloon. Yeah. And 
we didn't get our certification because the FAA refused to certify it. And we didn't care. You know, so, we, did, we did it. So to get that volume, is it just proportional or did you go higher or wider? Like how did? Yes, both. Both. Okay. Yep. Higher and wider. wider. Uh, one of the guys had a computer program or did he do it just by math? He might've just done it by, with a slide rule, must've done it with a slide rule. Cause I don't think any of us had computers back then, but anyway, it's just, it's a sphere. It's like a droplet shape. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine that much Tyvek. I mean, that is. Yeah. It cost us, I think, I think we must've spent about 20, $25,000 on Tyvek in 1983, I believe it was. That oh we did that. my goodness. Yeah. So that was a lot of Tyvek. Tell me somebody took a picture of this. Does people have a picture? Oh, of yeah, it? we've got pictures. And I have like old VHS tape of the flight and the news coverage. And one of these days I need to go get that burned onto video. Yes. I mean, and please put DVD. it on Facebook. I, I, get it oh digital. my goodness. So was this your brainchild or you just was part of the it was team? the group. I mean, we had a group of us. Tom Hancock was really the leader of the group. It started at my house. We had all gone to my house to fly one night in September. It was a weekend. And then we brought in some other people. We put a, there used to be a newsletter at that time called Pilot News. And we put a little classified ad in there saying, if you want to join us, it's going to cost you a thousand bucks. And some people did. And, um, yeah, $1,000 in 1983 is a lot of money. Yeah, we got together. We found a warehouse in Weymouth, Mass. That was the, the top floor was empty, and they let us have it. That's where we built it. And we, I mean, trying to get it out of the warehouse was really a challenge. But we accordioned the envelope and made like this great big human chain with it on our shoulders and fed it down a stairwell into this great big box, which is what we used as a as a basket for the balloon in the end. Oh my goodness. Brought it back up to Maine. And then, um, Tyvek's light, we, but that amount of Tyvek would be so heavy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. We had a lot of people. That's on, I use Tyvek when I'm camping for a ground cloth. Cause it's way lighter than the stuff that you can get yep. from like REI or whatever. But I can't like, we had rolls of it from when we built our house and I can't imagine that, that much Tyvek in one spot. Was a lot of Tyvek. Oh my goodness! Like how much you had to have a football field to lay that thing out to take off or bigger. We had a the largest lake in Maine. We were on the ice. Unreal. I, oh, any guess baby. about how many man hours you have into making that? I don't like know. Like thousands, I, mean, I would imagine. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh man, Ruth, that's so incredible. I love this. I should look and see. I wrote a story about it at the time while I was still fresh. I should send it to you. You should. But, um, yeah. I love this stuff. Some pictures. Another word I, le I learned looking through your bio is ski joring, which yeah. I had seen out in um, Wyoming this winter. I went snowmobiling out there and they had it out there. But I would imagine most people listening have never heard of this. And you don't do it with horses. You do it with your dogs. So what is right. ski joring? Well, you, in my case, harness up this, I have a couple sled dogs and I put dog sled harnesses on them, but instead of hooking them to a sled, I hook them to a long line, which is attached to a wide belt that I wear around my waist. And I put on cross country skis and say, go, go, go. And we go. And they, you're still, you're working, you're skiing just like you would in normal cross-country skiing but you get like dog assist so you can go really fast that's unreal and some people do it with bikes and some people do it with wagons but i only ever just did it with cross-country skis is that this is a ignorant question for me because i've not been to maine and not in the winter time for sure is that a common thing like is that some or are you do you stick out from your neighbors like oh no, there goes ruth again no it's pretty I mean, there's not tons of us, but it's not unusual. I, one of the things, so I've only been dog sledding once, uh, is at an auctioneer convention up in Duluth, Minnesota. And it was one of the perks for coming to speak is they would take all the speakers out to do it. And what I was amazed, one, is the acceleration of those dogs. Is oh, yeah. I was not prepared for how fast a dog can take off. And two, is how fast they can take a corner. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like they were working to throw me. I can't imagine being back there in skis. Wow. Do you have poles well, you, too, or are you just doing it? Yeah, uh, poles too. I mean, it's not like water skiing. You've got the poles and, you know, you've theoretically trained your dogs to, like I could tell my dogs to hold up or slow down or wait or whatever. And if I take a wipe out, which is not at all unusual, it's wait, you guys. <laughs> wait. And then I love I love racing. So when I get back up and get myself situated, it's green, green, green. You know, and off we go. Are, are there such a thing as drawing racing, ski drawing racing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's that's not my thing. I'm not very competitive with my dogs, but um, they definitely do. Is that. this something that we got from Canada or like a Nordic country or is this something we invented? No, I think it came from Scandinavia. Okay, that makes sense. And, and maybe, Canada's maybe, done it for a bunch, too. And maybe they do it with other animals as well. I imagine they've got reindeer and everything else. They could probably get pretty high speed. Probably. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about before we go, um, you and I had very different Antarctica experiences. Um, yeah. Most of the people coming on this podcast who've been in Antarctica were actually on the ship with me. So I went down with a normal expedition ship is a former Russian research vessel, ice rated hull. You went down in a sailing ship, right? Like a, no, it was a Russian research vessel. It was the spirit of Enderby, okay. um, but it was very small and it really was a research vessel. And we went from New Zealand. Yeah. You guys went the said, long way. Yeah. As you said, in the beginning of the show, it was, it was neat because it really was research. And on the way down, we stopped at, the Enderby Islands, and then we stopped at Macquarie, which is an Australian uh, heritage site, a, a world heritage site, and it's an. I didn't realize that that it was a. Uh, yeah, Macquarie site. Island, and it's a. They do a lot of research there. There, there's so much that went on down there. I, it's hard to know where to start, where to stop, but. They're researching all the wildlife. They would, the, the island was overrun with rabbits for a while because the some of the people had brought rabbits to try to take the vermin down. And then they figured they would eat the rabbits and harvest their fur while the rabbits got way out of control. And then the rabbits ate all the vegetation and the island, the whole island almost died. And then there was a whole thing with the penguins and then the some of the whalers and People, merchant seamen from one country in particular went down and just about wiped out the penguins and the whales just to harvest their fat. And there were things that we could say that see there. And there were some, we did some hiking, quite a bit of hiking on all the islands we stopped at. And then we kept going and we had to go down, as I'm sure you did, through the furious 40s. The, <laughs> yeah, you know, the dr- for us, they the called it the Drake 40s, Shake. The furious 50s and the screaming 60s as you go down in latitude. And we were just, oh my gosh, that was pretty intense. And then we, after we crossed the 70th degree line, it was like, ah, the whole ocean <laughs> just settled down. We went into um, the Bay of Wales. And the reason that I really wanted to do that trip was the Bay of Wales is where Little America was, and that was the settlement where Admiral Richard Byrd made camp to explore the South Pole with the first Chinook dogs, and that's what we have is Chinook dogs. And in fact, the very first Chinook is still there somewhere. He wandered off from camp and died. And uh, he was 13 years old when he went down there and was still a working sled dog at 13 years old. So... Little America right now is underwater. They bird built the camp on the uh, polar ice shelf, which changes every right. year back and forth. And many years ago, it went to the bottom. But when it's marked on all the charts, on all the nautical charts, Little America. And when we went there, I was up in the bridge and we're watching and it's the sh- You can see the ship on the chart and it's inching towards Little America. And when we hit Little America... I went outside on the deck and there was a sun dog, which is a huge, completely circular rainbow. Yeah. And then another one inside and the sun inside that. And I was just crying my eyes out. And the 
the guys told me that um, the legend is that the sun dog is the spirit of all the sled dogs who went before and are guiding us back home to them. And that's the legend. So my first Chinook had died a year or two before that, and I had a little jar of his ashes. And when I went out on deck, I opened that jar and just sort of tossed them, and the ashes just turned to gold dust in the no sun way. dog. And he he was absorbed into the sun dog. And then I had a little piece of fur that I had brushed out of my younger dog, the one you've seen in the background here tonight, the black one. And I let that go, and it just went popping and dancing and playing into the sun dog. And, and that's her personality. That's who she is. And the whole thing, oh, whatever it's I think emotional. of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I actually Rastro just going into the. I did not get to see a sun dog the whole. I mean, they, they explained to us that it was a possibility and all that, but we didn't get to see one when I was there. I'm a little jealous of that, but I love yeah. that you had a very spiritual moment. Uh, I had several of those. You just, you pinch yourself. You're like, I can't. Yeah, I can't believe there I'm were, alive for this right now. There were more than one, and and we went to the. Um, Antarctic Heritage Trust. I did a benefit auction for them while I was down there on the ship. No way. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, raised a bunch of money for them. And, I, and then we went to Scott's hut and Amundsen's hut and, uh, you know, different places that they maintain and did a lot of hiking and then came back and we got to go to um, Campbell Island. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. heard of that. That's off the coast of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And amazing research has been done there and the hikes there were unbelievable and i went on a snipe hunt and i found a snipe and that was really cool <laughs> so back to, so we know each other through the auction industry we both work in the auction industry i'm actually working for you today as we're recording yeah this. um is that the farthest south auction ever like do we know you could have the I'm, world's biggest balloon and the world's farthest south auction well it was funny because we went when we went down there we came within 600 miles of the south pole and I had a, ch a chance to ride a motorcycle to the nor North Pole later that summer. And no I almost did it. I, I didn't do it, and I regret not doing it. But that's the furthest south that I've ever been. And, yes, I conducted an auction down there. but I Dude, I I'm calling it for Guinness right now. There, who else would conduct? <laughs> you had to be the, the lowest licensed auctioneer to conduct. I mean, there may have been something, bidding war or something, but I would have to imagine a licensed National Auctioneers Association professional, definitely a Maybe. certified auctioneer institute graduate to be that close. That's amazing. That's Maybe. so fun. It was fun. It's funny to have an aunt to be calling calling bids while your husband is holding on to the waistband of your pants because the ship is rolling so much <laughs> that you might fall over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was that. We uh, we ended up sailing through a, a Category One hurricane on the way down. Oof. And that was, those are the biggest waves I've ever been in. But our, um, our ice climbing guide and our snowshoeing guide told us that he's like, that's totally different when you're in a smaller ship. Our ship was about 340, 350 feet long, which is significant in size. He said, we, when we come down here in wooden sailing ships, he said that 26 or 28 feet or whatever those waves were for us. He's like, you should experience that then because it, it's totally different. <laughs> I say no, thank you. Yeah, same, same. I, and that water's cold. Like I remember yeah. one, of, one of the naturalists on our ship told us that um, the whalers used to get in trouble because they would ask for sleeves because the captains would require them to whale in short sleeves. And I was like, I can't imagine. I'm here in their summertime. I cannot imagine <laughs> doing this year round in short sleeves. No. All right, so how I end every podcast, Ruth, is I ask each adventurer, what's an adventure still out there that you're dreaming about or planning or looking forward to? Something that's still out there. Something that's still out there. I really want to go to Zanzibar. Okay, that's the first. I have not got that answer yet. Yep. What's in Zanzibar? I'm just captivated by it. It's a little island off the coast of Africa. And it's 
from the pictures that I've seen and the people I've, very few people I've talked to who have been there, it's stunningly beautiful. There's a very unique culture there and I wanna go. Thank you so much, Ruth, for coming on today. Oh, you're I, welcome. I am so stoked. Uh, so we're releasing these in seasons. And I got to tell you, like, I, I told my producer when I first gave him this idea a year ago, I said, I want Ruth in the first three episodes because I just, Aww. I love her. I love her story. I love your attitude. I love just how our friendship formed. It was so much yeah. fun. Um, so thanks for well, coming Well, thank on you, today. Ryan. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Wow, you're like a professional podcast listener. If you like the interview you just heard, somebody else probably would too. Share the love by helping this podcast climb the rankings and be found by more people. Head over to iTunes and leave five stars and a review. As a thank you, I'll share my favorite reviews on Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, you can follow the show there at Everyday Adventures Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Ryplane. That's R-Y-P-L-A-N-E. Now go out there and chase your own adventure, and I'll meet you back here for our next episode. Mm-hmm.